0: Music journalism doesn't necessarily just have to be like chasing after the celebrities like red carpet style. It doesn't even have to be just like a clear cut appraisal of like whether this music is good or not. You can ask all these questions about like, well, what does it mean? And sometimes that in and it of itself can be provocative. So I don't know if there was a moment necessarily where like I got in trouble, but <laughs> but certainly like being in Atlanta opened my eyes up to all of the possibilities that exist when it comes to doing the work that we do. I'm Christina Lee, and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to Modern
1: Minorities. This is the show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. On today's show, we're talking to Christina Lee, a music journalist who's covered Atlanta's hip-hop scene for over a decade. Christina's award-winning cultural reporting and criticism appear in Billboard, The Guardian, NPR Music, Vulture, The Washington Post, and more. Christina goes so far beyond just covering the fun celebrity aspect of music. She's got a real community and social angle to her work, covering the local and national impact of elements like criminal justice, RICO statutes, gentrification, and even jury duty, and what they mean to our society at large. In my opinion, she's basically punk rock for journalism. Her work is definitely worth a read, so check out the links to her work in the show notes. Christine is a contributing editor to a community journalism nonprofit, Canopy Atlanta. She also co-hosts and co-writes the limited podcast series, King Slime, The Prosecution of Young Thug and YSL, covering the ongoing trial of Jeffrey Lamar Williams, known across the globe as Young Thug. This is a show not just following an ongoing case, but really digging into the whys of the prosecution in Atlanta, of all places, which has become a modern-day Mecca to hip-hop and Black culture. The podcast is actually still airing, so be sure to check out King Slime wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And beyond her work, and as rad as Christina sounds and is, it was just really interesting to hear about her growing up between the two cultures in the suburbs of Maryland and how MTV gave her a glimpse into what writing and journalism could be. So let's jump right in. We know you're really going to enjoy my chat with our new friend, Christina. (laughs) Christina. Christina, welcome to the pod. Thanks for joining us.
0: Hi, thanks so much for having me. All
1: right. So you're kind of infamous in the Atlanta scene, but I guess what folks really want to know is where are you from?
0: (laughs) Okay. I've been living in Atlanta since 2009, but I moved to Atlanta from Montgomery County and Frederick County, Maryland. I spent my whole childhood there. And then I- That's like
1: what, Bethesda, Silver Spring, stuff like that?
0: Okay. So my mom had moved us from Gaithersburg to Frederick going into tail end of middle school, beginning of high school for me. Yeah. All my paternal relatives were based in Gaithersburg and Germantown.
1: You know, I I just want to touch on this a little bit. So the the legit where are you from question, like I get into arguments with all my friends from Alabama about this because- when I when I run into someone at the airport, where are you from? I'm like, uh, you know, New York area, and my buddy Will, who I backpacked around the world with, you know, he's like, No, you're not. You're from Alabama. Say it. I'm like, No, I'm not. I I pay taxes. I own a house. All these things, you know. Yeah. How do you do? You associate Atlanta or Maryland when you say that?
0: It's a really tough question, and I think. Even a lot of folks who have been I mean, that's my favorite thing about asking people in Atlanta where they're from, also, mm-hmm. which because they'll say, Oh, I'm from the Bay Area, da-da-da, or I'm from wherever. And then I'm asking, Well, for how long have you lived in Atlanta? Mm-hmm. Oh, like 30 years. And I'm like, Oh, okay. So you don't you don't think, you don't think I think there is though in Atlanta this bit of criteria to explain whether you're really from Atlanta or not. Like, mm-hmm. I, you probably heard this before, but if you're like a Grady baby, if you, were, if you were grown here, like there's that expectation. Like if you get to say that you were like born here, that you have some knowledge of what folks call like old Atlanta, mm-hmm. then you get to say that you're like from Atlanta. But otherwise, you definitely have to qualify it a little bit. So that's why I, like, you know, I approach that question carefully.
1: I think the other one is, at uh, formative years, but if for our generation who didn't grow up with cell phones, or uh, not to date you, but I'll date myself. What's your current cell phone area code? Right. Yes. I actually, and when I started doing startup work in New York, I got a Google Voice number for reporters and stuff, and I made that a New York one. But even though my area code is like a Cincinnati one, where like I started my career, and my, the said friend Will, who gives me a hard time, he keeps his as Hawaii because he was stationed at Pearl Harbor, right? Even though he's like in Michigan. So what's your what's your area code? Are you an ATL?
0: Okay. This was actually this was actually like a super fraught question okay. over the past, oh, when did I change my phone? It might have been it was over the past year for sure. So basically what happened is that the phone that I had before this one was just like completely in the fritz. I had it for something like five years, which is like okay. ancient in cell phone time. At that moment I also decided to switch over phone carriers so that my partner and I could be, you know, mm-hmm. just pay AT&T one single bill. Even though that was right. a mistake in of itself because AT&T is super expensive. Sign
1: most of your life away together. Got
0: exactly, it. exactly. And so when I got this new phone and I switched over the service, the phone number that they had offered me was a 404 area code.
1: Okay. And
0: number one, I hate the process of having to tell people like, "Hey, here's my new number." I just get like Uh, really afraid of like losing contact with people. And I wouldn't Mm -hmm. want that to be a reason why. So for that reason, I didn't want to change my phone number. But also I figured that with the 404 area code that I was like portraying myself inaccurately. Like what he you know what I'm saying? Like, so if a 404 number was to call you, the implication would be like, oh, like you were here, like you are a native Atlanta versus the 470 area code that I currently have. It's kind of known that those, area codes went to like the more recent transplant. So it's like, I didn't want to like portray myself inaccurately or falsely.
1: (laughs) I know. I totally, I totally did that, man. When I, but I did it with a Google voice number, right? Like my 347, which is in the footer makes everyone like, oh, okay. New York guy. Right. Even though I'm not. Right. Right. All right. So I'm a poser. You're not. I got it. (laughs) All right. But more, more important, I went up down the, the rabbit hole of where you're from, but I got to ask the inevitable second version of that question you get after you tell them, you know, Maryland or Atlanta based on your area code. Where are you really from?
0: So I was born in the United States. I was born in Gaithersburg, Maryland on June 2nd, 1986. So
1: you should lead with Atlanta and then just go to Maryland after that. Right.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But my my dad is Korean and my mom is Vietnamese, which is a combination that nobody really guesses accurately.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, never mind like looking at skin tone, but it's actually like understanding the cultures of those two countries. Mm, mm-hmm. I, I guess, d- did they meet here? Or did they meet somewhere else?
0: They did meet in the state. So at this point, my mom had been working in Bethesda, Maryland, actually. Yeah. And then uh, my dad came with his two siblings and my grandmother, uh, so that she ended up working at Andrew's Air Force Base. So around that time, like, they were both around
1: Maryland. Yeah. Got it. You know, I, I, it's such an American thing. Like, you know, even though I'm up one generation below your parents, it's like, yeah, i met my Chinese-American wife at my job. Right. And it's more because it's the dash American part that brought us together. And I I emphasize the dash part, right? Not the Chinese part or the Indian part because those two cultures, I don't want to say they're not compatible, but so I guess, was it a mix of the two? Like I'm asking because I'm like trying to figure out how my daughter's interpreting it right now.
0: Oh, sure, sure, sure. So in regards to my mom's side, my mom does have one older brother who is still right. based around like the DMV. And up until maybe like ages 10, 11, 12, like I still got to see cousins
1: on like my Vietnamese side. I still got to yeah.
0: hang out with my Vietnamese aunt and uncle.
1: There's a big crowd, but it's mostly in Virginia, not Maryland, right?
0: Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it was crucial to be closer to Virginia because yeah, of, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. like the the community there. But it was my dad's side. So my Korean grandmother, aunt, uncle, like being based around Gaithersburg, Jordan. Now, first of all, they were more conveniently located to us. And so mm-hmm. it was like my brother and I would see them usually like over the weekends or like if summer let out, there would be a times when I would just like sleep over at their place or whatever. So I got to interact more though with like my Korean relatives. And like you, you learn the bad words in Korean. I don't know the bad words in Vietnamese. <laughs>
1: All right. But what about food? Was it it more kimchi at home or more banh mi at home?
0: Well, what ends up happening is that my parents divorced when I was 11. And then prior to that, even my dad did a lot of international work. And so as a result, mom was usually cooking for us. Mm. It wasn't like always like strictly Vietnamese. It was just like, okay, what can I cobble together? What feels the most convenient? So certainly like americanized in that sense it was like okay <laughs> yeah just like a mishmash of whatever
1: yeah yeah trust me it was not all uh indian feasts every night right although it was a lot of for me it was a lot of like dal and rice which is just like lentils and rice yeah right right so so growing up in maryland like uh around that time your folks are getting divorced what do you want to be when you grew up
0: you know i'm trying to remember the point where i thought being a writer made sense. I don't know where I got that notion, honestly, because I don't think even looking back at some of those old school papers that I have, I don't think I was particularly good at it. But I did read a lot. And it was always a point of concern in the sense that like, maybe I would stay up too late reading a book about like, you know, Rover and Elmo and them, or like, I would need to keep myself occupied in the car. So it's like, do I bring a book with me or you know, do I risk getting car sick if I'm trying to like read in a moving vehicle? (laughs) But at some point it was being a Raider just made sense. And then coming into high school, specifically senior year of high school, um, my mom made the fortunate mistake of getting us table in the house. And so like, yeah, at the time when I should have been prepared to go to college, like doing better at studying for the SATs, I'm watching MTV instead
1: Kurt Lo- is this like the Kurt-, Kurt Loder era or someone else?
0: Um, I mean, like Kurt Loder is certainly there, but this is more specifically like Sway Calloway, Su Yeah, Yeah, yeah Getting yeah. Yego. But even still, like just the mere image of a VJ or like a newscast with the MTV News, it seemed like just super glamorous and super out there. But I was like, these people are cool. I don't think I mm. thought like I want to be like them when I grew up, but I was just like, that was a level of aspiration for me, especially moving to... Frederick specifically, to attend Walkersville High School where, moving from Montgomery County, where there were more racial minorities up until like Frederick, there was just like a lot more white people. It just felt like something that that was aspirational, but at the same time, a little bit more relatable.
1: So do you reveal that idea to mom and dad? I mean, I had to like, I remember when I would watch MTV, you know, the remote control used to have that like back button and I would always have the back button on whatever cartoons or CNN or something. So every time I'd watch MTV, because, you know, it was louder and my parents, I'd see my parents walking to the room, I'd hit the last channel button and go back to CNN and pretend I was watching (laughs) it. So because my my parents were the ones who were like, why are you talking back? It's because you're watching The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and Saved by the Bell, right? And (gasps) God forbid, Nirvana, right? So Uh later on, you know, like I would blare the CDs in my room, but that's like five years later. So I guess the question is like, as you're like really vibing with the BJs and MTV News. How did mom and dad feel about that? Or did you reveal that to them?
0: I don't think it made itself completely clear yet. I guess what you have to keep in mind is that at this time in Frederick, I was super fortunate and my bedroom was in the basement. Okay. It was basically like I had a studio apartment, except like, you know, obviously mom would come down there to do the laundry and whatever. And on top of that, our main home desktop was there. Mm. And so like all the times when I really should have been studying, you know, I always just made the excuse like, oh, you know, I got to do my homework. I got to be at the computer. On the computer. Right, exactly, right. exactly. But that at that time, it was like the TV was right next to me. We had MTV too also. What? Yeah, so you have to understand there is a whole other realm of music that I'm being exposed to Mm -hmm. that I'm learning isn't available at the 24-hour Walmart across the street. Like I spent my junior prom, first of all, just being like really bored. I was like, this is stupid. (laughs) And I was like the third wheel. But at the end of the night, when all was said and done, it was like, okay, well, what do we do? Like being bored teens, we were like, okay, let's just go to the Walmart. And I had in my head, I need to find Phrenology by the Roots. Because wow. at the time, the song, the C2.0, oh, was being on constant rotation. I thought Cody Chesnut was amazing. I didn't understand he was part of the group, but I was just like, you know, like, that's the whole vibe I want. And when I went to the music aisles of Walmart and saw that it wasn't there, I was just like, oh, shit, I got to get out of here. There's a whole other big world. But all that is to say is, um, I don't think mom had any idea. <laughs> I think I don't think mom had any idea. She was very busy, especially pretty much around this time. Mm -hmm. She's already operating as a single parent, and she had been for years. So even just trying to wrap her head, it's like, are we fed? You know, are we good?
1: Maslow's hierarchy of need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes,
0: exactly, exactly. I I do want to
1: ask, because, you know, I had a very long-standing music rebellious phase. And then somewhere in my late 20s, I started getting into not the classics, but like classic rock, or even trying to understand the stuff my parents were listening to that wasn't like Indian religious music because they Mm -hmm. listened to Rod Stewart and the Beatles and Simon and Garfunkel. And I didn't have a perspective on it other than I just knew it. I didn't Mm -hmm. know even that I didn't even acknowledge that it was good because it was my parents' music, but I knew all the lyrics. Yeah. So what was mom listening? I have to imagine everyone listens to music. It's this thing that binds the universe together. Of course. Do you remember what mom and dad were listening to in the car picking you up, et cetera? I
0: think growing up, at least, even not just beyond our parents, but just like our like sort of immediate family, because why? I had a couple the uncle
1: uncles, and aunt, right?
0: Yeah. right? I had a couple uncles who actually worked as wedding DJs, so I mm-hmm. feel like they were even more on the pulse. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was it was Michael Jackson. It was it was disco. So much disco. My mom to this day still loves ABBA, but whenever when we were in the car, I just remember at the time it was. Goo Goo It was Savage Garden. I didn't understand oh, the gay energy around Savage Garden at the time, or <laughs> would have appreciated it more. But at the time, it it all felt like very soft. It all felt like yeah. very gentle. Sunny very... One Hundred
1: Three, Easy Rock.
0: Yeah, yeah, super super unassuming. So that by the time I'm like going on, oh my god, I I can like still remember. Did that make not... you
1: harder? Did I like make your taste like harder and more rebellious? Having to hear the. <laughs> I
0: don't know what it did, but I it did feel like there was such a clear divide. Between the music that was immediately available at my grasp yeah, and yeah. like what kind of seemed just out of my grasp. Because like mtv 2 was also like my portal, like to smack my bitch at my prodigy. I didn't even mm. understand. I was like, what the hell is going on? Like, how could this stuff be like so explicit? So yeah, I don't know. Maybe there was a clear divide there. But.
1: I'm just having so many flashbacks on this conversation. Did you have the do you have the box? Do you, do you know what the box is?
0: The box was um Oh
1: shoot! It was basically a music channel on cable, but it was like you know, if MTV for me was channel I think thirty-four. Okay. You know, VH1 was channel thirty. MTV Two. I don't even think I discovered MTV Two till boarding school. Okay. But that was up in the eighties. But the box was like channel 54, or 58 in Montgomery. Nice. It's so funny. I have these like numbers burned in my head. Like it's so funny. Um, but the box was literally you called call a nine hundred number and request a song huh. and. They play the music videos and while the music video is playing, they're scrolling across the bottom, all the numbers for the different songs. And it's funny because you said Prodigy smack my bitch up like that song and a lot of explicit stuff, obviously by young teenage boys was being played, but also just like a lot of legitimately good explicit music was being played on the box (laughs) that other people were requesting who, you know, could afford to do it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, I don't know if we had the box. I remember we had MTV, MTV2. We had BH1. We also had Much Music.
1: Well, that's Canada, isn't it?
0: Yes, yes. Yeah. I was like, wait a second.
1: So you were watching like Alanis Morissette, like pop style, probably. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I I just remember. Oh, and I, I can't forget. We also had BET. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. what was also really formative to me at the time was like 106 and Park and then uh, specifically catching the basement. So it's Big Tigger, and that's like uh, Kid Capri. Oh, who was the DJ? I think it was Kid Capri, but the basement was like also super important because like I think up until that time, my only exposure to rap might have been through radio, WPGC. Yeah. But it wasn't something that my mom would have been playing in the car. Yeah. It was like I had control of the dial
1: at least. So you're kind of, hiding this hip hop, forming nascent like hip hop rap identity for mom in the basement because you're doing work on the computer. But when you go to school, what did you do to fit in? Were you wearing this kind of pride on your sleeve about this growing taste in, in rap and hip hop? Or was it secretly in your locker, you know, lyrics scrolled on your book covers? Like, was it part of your public identity in school? Or were you just trying to fit in and, you know, listening to Savage Garden?
0: Yeah, I don't know if it was part of my identity yet. I think During those years, I was just more open in general, like because I also had a friend Catherine who like was like a day one like Fallout Boy fan, Mm -hmm. and I just remember being open and receptive to that as well. I think I was just like hungry for anything and everything, but in terms of like how I carried myself in school, no, I was like painfully shy. Mm -hmm. The only sort of role in which I felt like I had to like actually speak out was being part of the, uh, the high school newspaper. At one point, right. I remember like I was editor-in-chief, I think like my final year, but then there was uh, another classmate who had like more inherent natural leadership qualities and honestly probably would have made a better editor-in-chief, but she was like concerned that I wasn't I wasn't going to be so much in charge over the newspaper as she felt like that that person needed to be, which was like completely fair, which is completely fair. I was certainly like meek, And honestly, in that classroom setting, I definitely wasn't going to be the person who was going to even like bother raising their hand. I was like, just get me out of here. Just get me out of here.
1: I gotta ask because now I'm I'm seeing a through line between all these things. Mm -hmm. In that period, working on the high school newspaper, what was the thing, the riskiest thing that you put out that you worked on that you edited or the, the riskiest thing you pushed for? Or was it all just kind of like, you know, bake sales and shit?
0: Oh, God. Yeah. I don't even remember.
1: Did you get in trouble for anything on the paper ever?
0: I don't think, no. I wasn't a rabble rouser like (laughs) Victor.
1: All right.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I was thinking about that though. I was like, what what did we even publish back then?
1: All right, all right. Well, uh, so fast forward, you obviously are a rabble rouser now in my opinion, which that's a compliment. When did the rabble rousing start? When's one of the first things you're like, okay, I'm not just going to like play it safe with my work?
0: Mm, That's a good question.
1: Yeah. What's the first thing you got in trouble for? Where your editor was like, "Are you sure you want to do this?"
0: (laughs) I don't know if I've necessarily like even gotten to that point yet. So to compare it to like my understanding of a journalist growing up, like which really was through like MTV VJs and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. I didn't quite understand that journalism could ask the hard questions that it really could until I moved to. Atlanta specifically.
1: Right. Why? Well, I, I explain that. What's different about Atlanta versus Maryland?
0: Yeah. So what ended up happening was once I moved to the city, I was trying to figure out like, okay, who could I who could I write for? Because at this time this was well, I should be more clear. So before I officially like moved to Atlanta. I did have an internship at Pace Magazine, which is in nearby Decatur, Georgia at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I spent a little bit of time here. But then after that, I thought I should move to Atlanta to at least take advantage of like the two connections that I have here.
1: And really, and really quick for our listeners, Decatur is kind of like the Williamsburg of Atlanta. Is that fair? Like the brooklyn vibe? Have I
0: been to Williamsburg? Do I even know that compares? All my hipster
1: friends have settled down in Decatur. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So Decatur, Decatur is kind of it's sprawling in a way that not even like Atlanta's sprawling, but it's certainly like more suburban. Like it's part of like what's considered like the East Side, but you have like the downtown Decatur, which maybe speaks to the more Williamsburg vibes that you're talking got about. It, but then there are the certainly like the more residential areas as well.
1: Mm. So, so the the reporting you're doing there is more residential, suburban kind of paper stuff, or well,
0: Pace was a music magazine specifically.
1: Uh, okay. so.
0: Pace was a music magazine and this was like my first experience just writing music reviews in general. And like at the time, just like trying to figure out what the hell I'm doing because I really had no idea. I was just like, OK, so I'm still getting my footing. But once I complete that internship and then come back to Atlanta, I'm trying to figure out like who I can write for now mm-hmm. and I remembered that in the DMV there's an alt-weekly called Washington City Paper mm-hmm. and what I discovered was that there's one of their sister publications was Creative Loafing in Atlanta so I was like okay mm-hmm. I know what Washington City Paper is maybe I could start writing for Creative Loafing and getting to know the staff there I think especially observing the writings of uh, Rodney Carmichael who I think started as a staff writer over Creative Loafing and then, like, we know him now as, like, the co-host and co-writer of Ladder Than a Riot. But at the time, like, he's kind of like the hip-hop guy. At While being the hip-hop guy, just asking all, like, sort of these hard questions about what that means in terms of, like, Atlanta's identity. And it's just putting all the pieces together. It's like, okay, so music journalism doesn't necessarily just have to be, like, chasing after the celebrities like red carpet style. It doesn't even have to be just like a clear cut appraisal of like whether this music is good or not. You can ask all these questions about like, well, what does it mean? And sometimes that in and it of itself can be provocative. So I don't know if there was a moment necessarily where like I got in trouble, but <laughs> but certainly like being in Atlanta opened my eyes up to all of the possibilities that exist when it comes to doing the work that we do.
1: So the thing I observed about your work, you know, when when past guest Victor introduced us and I started reading some of your work is you know, music is a through line to your work. And it, actually the first post I read by you actually had to do with jury duty. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I uh, this article doesn't match the look and feel of this website. And I was like, okay, but I want to read it because I'm a wonk. I'm a, you know, I'm a crooked media listener. Or a, I'm an NPR donator, blah, blah, blah. Let's read this. Let's see what this says. And I think music's kind of your way in. This is sorry, this is my assessment, but I want to ask about: Am I right, or why? Why is this wrong? Why is this right? Like, music is a way in to understand what's working and not working in a society, in a a local, in a community. Right? You're focused on the Atlanta area. Do do you gravitate towards one or the other? Is it uh, the music MTV VJ thing, or it's the community activism, community voice? Like, you know, the problem with jury duty that's fucking up our society.
0: Yeah. First of all, like you totally nailed it. I appreciate that. And I'm so glad that like comes through. I've gotten back and forth, right? Mm -hmm. Because there was a period in time where I thought writing like a celebrity profile Mm -hmm. was going to be the way for me to like make myself like sort of stand out. So for context, the last time that was in New York, it was a take-of-feature writing class by a Tappy producer, actor, and, like, she had just turned in the manuscript for Fleshman is in Trouble, right? Mm -hmm, So it's around mm -hmm. that year. And, like, I was in just such awe of, like, her work. I was like, this is great. I could do this, but maybe, like, you know, just where I am, take these principles. The tricky part, I think, about trying to do that in a music context is that so often it does come across as just like cheerleading, which I think for a lot of folks in music, like it's fine. I, you know, I would love to be generous, but I think especially with, how small the music journalism circles like really are. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've probably heard like a million times about like just how fraught the industry is. And so there is even- Well,
1: when you say the industry, you mean journalism or music journalism is fraught?
0: Just journalism in general.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, of course.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So music journalism is sort of like a microcosm of what's going on in the journalism industry, just as far as like layoffs and all these considerations we've had to make about what the future is supposed to look like, especially when the purse is sort of out of editorial's hands. There was a time where I was doing a bunch of profiles and it felt like the good and right thing. And like, you know, the work was coming in as a result, but something about it didn't feel quite right. Like I felt like it didn't leave enough room for sort of these societal questions. And like, and also maybe that's too much to put onto one specific individual, to be fair. But I did find myself a little bit hungrier to you know, work through the commentary part of it and use music as a vehicle rather than like just do like the fawning celebrity type stuff. So yeah, I think that's where I'm at right now.
1: Well, yeah, so that brings me to you're also a podcaster and a producer and you have the show King Slime that launched back in August. And I never, again, I'm a classic rock, rock guy, dad in suburban New York. So I Uh I never heard of Young Thug. Maybe I should have. I, I just don't know. But like, can you talk about, and again, it's not just about Young Thug. That's what's so interesting about this show. It, there's a bigger arc. There's a bigger message is the wrong word too, but there's like, there's a bigger reason people should be listening to a story like this because it's indicative of something else going on in our society. Can, can you talk about what King Slime is and why you were drawn to a project like this? And cause it feels like just this natural evolution of kind of what you've been doing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So in May, 2022, the rap artist Young Thug was arrested on a Rico indictment at like the literal height of his career. Like he had just, he had just performed Saturday Night Live. It was him and one of his signees, Gunna, who honestly was probably even more successful just like in terms of like charting and billboarding kind of stuff. So Gunna and Young Thug were two of a couple dozen, you know, defendants named in this gang indictment, basically asserting that the label that Young Thug had been running, Young Stoner-like, is actually mm-hmm. a criminal street gang. So in of itself, just in the in the music sphere of things, the arrest was like shocking. The arrest was sure, shocking sure, because sure. it was probably the most- Celebrity scary. headlines,
1: yes. rapper does this. Yeah,
0: exactly. And it was certainly like one of, if that the most Hyde's profile example of like how in Atlanta specifically, although I'm sure also nationwide, Rap artists in particular, whatever that definition may be, from, you know, somebody who has 200 views on YouTube up until now, literally like number one albums, mm-hmm. how rap artists in particular get targeted in like these gang indictments. And in part because these prosecutors are looking at what's available sure. on YouTube and social media and stuff like that.
1: So. are looking for a nail.
0: Yes. Yes. So really, I'm looking at the, when I first hear about the indictment, it was just a moment of disbelief. It was like, how is this even happening? Like, why is this even happening? Um, but then very quickly, like the case reveals itself to be part of this larger conversation about where Atlanta is right now, right?
1: Right. Where is Atlanta right now, though?
0: Where is Atlanta right now?
1: Yeah. Tell me, because yeah. I don't go there that anymore. So
0: uh, so right now, it's interesting. Atlanta has a reputation for being a black Mecca. It's also known for being a hip-hop capital. Yeah. In general, when we talk about how rap music introduces racial bias into a criminal trial to where lyrics will get used as evidence even when there isn't physical evidence to throw somebody into prison. Right. You bring up the image of the clueless white guy, like the clueless white 70-year-old judge to a clueless white jury. You know what I mean? Has no idea about how rap can be metaphorical, how, you know, it's always been about, that is an art form.
1: Johnny Cash didn't really kill a guy just to watch him die.
0: Exactly, exactly. So I think a lot of the podcast is about trying to square, like, how the hell does this happen in Atlanta? Of all places.
1: Of all places. Of
0: all places. That's really what we're trying to get to the heart of.
1: Do you think some of it's kind of trying to take the town back? To take what back? It, to, to your point, you know, Atlanta has has been or has become this hip-hop mecca, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm going to get a little political. It's like the idea of minority rule in this country, uh, and minority rule being the former majority. Mm-hmm. Majority of opinions, too, of conservatively what we want this country to be. We want it to be the way it's always been, blah, blah, blah. Do you think some of that is kind of exerting that power to kind of push back?
0: Mm, mm. I think there might be a pushback in the sense that Atlanta for decades now, has tried to be very deliberate in how it presents itself. Dating back to the Beater Jackson administrations up until the bid for the 96 Olympics up until now. Right. You know, vying for the DNC, vying for the World Cup. You know, Atlanta's very concerned with always presenting itself as like a world-class city in that regard.
1: Right.
0: Hip-hop was never part of that equation. I think hip-hop really sort of complicated Atlanta's own plans as to how it would present itself and so I think with this trial you see that at odds and you see even like the DA Fonnie Willis try to negotiate it's like okay well I understand like what rap music is you know I've got my own rap music playlist like da 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 but
1: I've got black friends right Yeah, yeah 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 yeah
0: that type of thing but we're also not going to tolerate this. You know, right. we're also not.
1: And this is an ongoing trial, isn't it? Or is this has this already done?
0: Listen, OK, they are still going through jury selection. Jury selection began in January 2023, mm-hmm. and they're still doing it. They're still doing it right now. <laughs> I don't know whether anybody's officially been seated yet, but it has been literally like a month's long, tedious process to the point where when. Okay, so when we signed on to do this podcast, it's myself, our producer, Tommy Andres, and then my co-host, Stuart Sheedy, we thought we were going to be covering the trial. We did not know that this was going to be a primer, but once we saw that, like, jury selection was taking so long, we're like, ah, shit.
1: What? First of all, what do we do? Well, no, but this, this is where this is interesting. You know, when I first, you know, when I'm re- reading up on you after Victor introduced us, I'm like, oh, okay, she... She did kind of a true crime rap thing about something that happened. And I was like, oh shit, this is happening. Then I started Googling it. I was like, this is ongoing. And that's where this is so interesting. Like, yeah, this is commentary and narrative. With great power comes great responsibility, Christina. <laughs> but like, it's like, can you sway opinion on things? Right. Like, that's what's so interesting. You're, this is like ongoing, like on the ground journalism now. It's not just that shit happened. Isn't that weird?
0: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry. That's cool. That's such a weird. Fraught position to be in. I mean, how do you feel about
0: yeah. that? Yeah. I mean, so it's funny. Like, so right before Hopped On With You, I'm trying to outline episode six, which is technically the end. four just
1: dropped uh, as of today. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. And like, I'm trying to figure out where this podcast ends for now.
1: Is it a limit? Is it a little? Did iHeart give you like a limited series run or is this an ongoing thing?
0: We have a limited series, but like, I also think we didn't anticipate that like the trial wouldn't have happened yet. So we're trying to figure out like what the future of this podcast holds and that type of stuff. So I'm just trying to figure out, I guess, like the chapter ending, if you will. Mm -hmm. And up until this point, I I just think of all the times like, because like we're on the ground, because we're talking to like Fonnie Willis in the moment, because we're talking to all these people like in the moment, people are still trying to make up their minds. And honestly, there have been so many times where I've been like, I still need to make my mind up. You know what I mean? Like, I still don't know quite know like, what even happened? So like with this... But I think that's
1: that's where being a, a podcaster versus a journalist is really interesting mm-hmm. because someone smarter than me, Scott Galloway, said people who uh, listen to podcasts, you, you treat the host kind of like your friend because they're in your ear all the time, right? Yeah. So you're kind of figuring it out with us. Yeah. And that's okay. Versus a journalist just like, okay, I need you to tell me how, what to make of this, please.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Take me on a journey versus, I don't know. That's what this podcast... I literally don't know what I'm talking about half the time because I'm trying to work my own shit out with you. <laughs> Like I should be paying you as a therapist, right?
0: I mean, maybe we lean into that more with the final episode. I have no idea. I, I feel like some sense of responsibility to be like, okay, like, now that we've, like, thrown all these plot points at you, here's how to make the most sense of it. But maybe we still need to lean into that because, like, nothing's happened yet. Nothing's happened. <laughs> and, like, you know, I'm not, I'm not a weather forecaster, so.
1: Yeah. I mean, I almost feel like you know put your inner lawyer on and like go talk to the people that the lawyers might want to go talk to before they go talk to them
0: right, 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 ah, oh, so
1: much possibility. what do mom and dad like make of all this work like do they do they understand what you do do they do they read your work uh do they get it
0: so with my mom, she mostly cares whether I'm busy and whether I'm good because. I think the main thing, especially with me, like I'm freelance Mm -hmm. and I've been freelance for majority of my career. On top of that, I was doing music journalism and like the way that even like my grandmother looked at it in those early days before I moved to Atlanta when I was living in her house. Mm
1: -hmm. She's like,
0: you're just at your computer all day and you're making like negative money. Like what's happening? (laughs) So I think so my mom mostly just cares whether I'm busy you know, and whether the deals are panning out. Yeah, She's like, yeah. is this enough money? And I was like, you know, yes. and Okay, that's what she cares about. My dad is interested in a subject matter, from a subject matter perspective. But because, uh, here's the thing. This is where I get to, you know, say that my dad was always right. My dad has been in my ear for years and years and years now mm-hmm. about like Korean pop culture, this soft power, being like a big, big thing, right? Yep. Yep, and yep. he's absolutely right. You just look around the landscape. Like he, he bought me my first Hot CD. So it's like I get it. I get it. He's always been asking, like, why don't you get more involved with that? Cover more of this. Da 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 da. And um, I was like, listen, I totally get it. I totally get it. But the language barrier, especially for me being a writer by trade, like it pains me to like hear a song and like not fully understand or not being able yeah. to like yeah, 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 converse yeah. in the way that we are right now. So that's always been like kind of a hang up for me or whatever. It's like, dang, like I could do it like a little bit better. I had a stint where like I was trying to teach myself Korean and then I just got like really bored. And I was, mm-hmm. you know, so I could certainly be better in that regard. But I guess like, yeah, that's basically what they make of me right now. But, you know, not
1: not knowing nearly enough about, you know, K-pop and even like J-pop before. Like I, I saw this wave right. coming. Just as someone who like thinks about culture and you know, trends and movement and stuff, but I would argue your outsider sensibility, even though you're not Korean, but you don't speak Korean, blah blah blah. Like, I would argue your outsider hip hop societal impact sensibility. Apply. I, I genuinely don't know if there's a CD underbelly to the K-pop movement. Right? Like, I just don't. But like, there's such an interesting angle versus all the same old. You t- you talked about music journalism earlier about like I remember you said something about like. Kind of just kind of writing the pieces about, oh, it's not that cool. Mm-hmm, what, you know, mm-hmm, doing? Mm-hmm. you have this ability to go a little bit deeper based on kind of the kinds of things you think about and things you care about, like the, the spidey sense that you have, so to speak. So I don't know. I, I think you gotta, you gotta like a vulture on this shit with what your dad wants you to do, but with, what you want to do.
0: Uh, there is a, I literally did just read a book though by Elise Hugh mm-hmm. called Flawless. And it's basically like, Trying to pick apart like how we got to this moment, but specifically with Korean skincare and beauty standards. And she does talk, oh, yeah. talk about the K pop industry and how they become like the best case scenario avatars and spokespeople for like this beauty standard that's become like global, but also like super aspirational to the point where like it's keeping us awake at night.
1: I, I literally think it's, you got to write the jury duty or the Rico post about K pop. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. I'll put it on the docket. I was accepted. You know, you could open up like an email time machine and, and write yourself like a quick note to that that little girl uh, listening to MTV2. What would you tell her?
0: Uh, oh, what would I do? What I would do is, okay, I would write her and be like, listen, get the NPR internship sooner. Apply for NPR. As soon as you can.
1: Because
0: mm-hmm. basically what happened is that through college, I'm like trying to figure out like what the hell I do. Like the idea of writing about music for a career just seemed so flat-flung that like I did not even entertain it as a possibility. But it wasn't until I graduated from college. Because that was a thing. Pace Magazine was the only place that would take an intern who had already graduated. Mm-hmm. Versus NPR, I think, allowed the grace period of one semester. And I had met Bob Berlin by then, but mm. I didn't make the cut because I was already too senior for it. So, especially with NPR's offices being in D.C., yeah. I would have been like, listen, this is the first thing you do when you get on campus. Don't waste time. Don't fuck around. That's what I would write in the email. <laughs>
1: Don't fuck around. Don't fuck around. Yeah, <laughs> You know, I, I I just to push back on that. Like, I you know, you shouldn't fuck with time travel, but it's just because like, you wouldn't be doing the cool things and the accidental like I think the fucking around and figuring it out is just as the fucking it up. Like, I think that's just like so important. Like, you don't want to peek too soon with that sweet, sweet NPR internship as much as <laughs> no, I wish I was Jad Rob you know? So.
0: Right, 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 right. I mean, that that's certainly true. I think in the very roundabout way, like, you know, life takes its turns for the reasons that it needs to Yeah. also. But also, like, I would like to have not spent a couple years paying
1: student loans, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah. And I didn't even <laughs> have that many to begin with. I was very, very fortunate. But That's um, the grown-up
1: in you talking. That's good. <laughs>
0: absolutely, absolutely.
1: Well, Christina, this has been such a rad chat and I I wish we could talk more and I hope we will get to talk more on and off the mic. I don't know. Do you think you're ready for a speed round? Let's do it. All right. Christina, what's one thing about you that no one expects?
0: Okay. One thing about me that no one ever expects. It's that, oh, one thing that always like catches people off guard is that like, I really don't watch a lot of TV.
1: Mm, mm. Like,
0: and I really don't care for it. And the TV that I do entertain has to be like, thoroughly camp.
1: Wow. You need the mental breaks on the serious shit you work on.
0: I, I think so. I think so. I was on a RuPaul's Drag Race kick for a while until I realized my brain was just melting like a t- little bit too much. But then just as far as like TV and cinema and stuff like that, like total opposite to you, I'm completely like just tuned out, checked out from the whole, like, superhero phenomena. Like, my two criteria for anything that I even bother watching is usually, like, choreography, cinematography, and just, like, camp. Like, so, like, John Wick fits in that nexus. It's
1: a vibe. It's a vibe thing for you. It's
0: it's absolutely, like, a vibe thing. But it's, like, super, super specific to where, like, I put on blinders for most of, like, TV and film.
1: You know, it's funny. Um, As a kid who grew up reading comics, and I... I am so worn out. Like, the thing that was my secret thing, that was my MTV2, even though MTV2 was my MTV2, but, like, uh-huh. the fact that everyone else has it now makes it less valuable to me, you Oh, know? my
0: God. So, yeah.
1: <laughs> and another thing that, that really resonates with me there is, like, so when I was coming up in my 20s, my older sister and I were roommates for a hot minute. You know, I'm watching, like, The Wire and Friday Night Lights and Battlestar Galactica, all these, like, deeply societal things.
0: Mm, mm-hmm. And my sister's
1: watching Friends. And I was being all like judgy to her. And she's my my sister's a doctor. Life and death every day. Whereas I'm like doing marketing for shampoo. And she's like, and I have a friend who's like an an assistant DA. And she's like, I can't watch The Wire. I need this release from the serious shit that I'm working on. Yes. And I think that's like what we are drawn to in pop media. Yeah. Has to be the opposite of our day job because we want an escape from it.
0: Oh, that's the other thing too. That's the other thing too. You know, especially having interned at in Baltimore and everything and like mm-hmm. having interned at Baltimore City Paper during like the height of the wire. Yeah. I, I never finished the show. Like yeah. I stopped when Michael B. Jordan died Yeah, because I was like, I cannot do this.
1: I just can't do it. Well, season four was the best season. so Sure. So, <laughs> can you recommend a book or a movie that has characters you relate to? It
0: has characters I relate to. Oh, oh, that's good. Okay. So you're thinking like fiction specifically?
1: Anything. Anything?
0: Anything. Okay. So I'm trying to be better about reading. And the problem is like with my choice of books, I'm trying to figure out like my criteria for books, especially because Mm. I want to feel like a little bit more stimulated, but I also kind of needed to be a metaphorical bong rip and like trying to figure out like that combination has been like really challenging. So I think the last book that I really related to was by Anne Helen Peterson. It was can't even. It was about, you know, millennials being like the burnout generation, essentially. Like, I I saw myself too much in that book. Now, was it relaxing? Was it a good way to clock out? Like, absolutely not. But that's because I was relating so much. Probably not the best one is for those nights where I couldn't sleep. But yeah.
1: What's your favorite mom dish?
0: Oh, God. Okay. I, I really like her fried rice.
1: Okay. What's in it?
0: She does a lot of black pepper. Okay. She does a lot about pepper. She does like the standard like frozen vegetables, like that carrot and pea mix like that we yeah. all know. But it's something about the way she seasons it and gets it like extra crisp because like my partner will make fried rice here at home. But that's always the standard I'm measuring up against. Like she manages to get yeah, it just like crispy, but not too oily. Yeah, that's yeah. the standard for me.
1: I'm, I'm going to send you the Malaysian fried rice Please. That's become our family go-to. Nice. What's what's your least favorite food?
0: Um. Well, I'm a vegetarian. That's a pretty easy question.
1: Uh, you, nah, you can. You I, can. I don't allow that. So okay. Of the vegetarian-friendly foods, what's the veto thing you don't want?
0: Dang. Because that's the thing. Like, I became a vegetarian by like taste.
1: Oh, so you you didn't like the taste of meat. So
0: right. And- I, I by choice as a child, I was like, oh, I don't like pork. That's interesting. Huh. And so even now.
1: All of all both sides of your Asian heritage are rolling over. in Oh,
0: exactly. As I'm impossible to feed. <laughs> and on and that front, like I really, I really don't like the impossible burger type stuff. Yeah, but yeah. I understand that that is not for me. It is available to me. But every time I have it, I'm like, Ugh, no, yeah.
1: that's OK. Who's someone out there you want to talk to on a podcast? Oh, my God. That's a very broad question. Speedrun is like the hardest part. We, I, I get you to unravel everything about your soul and then, like, I stump you on speedrun. That's, that's, oh my part. God. Well,
0: that's the thing. I really want to talk to Young Thug and Gunna right now with the nature of the podcast. I really want to talk to them. I mean,
1: the, the trial keeps going. I don't see why you can't.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think it'll happen. But just right now, it, especially in the hip hop sphere, it has been really, really challenging to. Talk to people more so than I've ever experienced in my career because I because it is ongoing and I and thoroughly understand how
1: sensitive the subject matter is, but that's the reality I have to deal with. What does being a modern minority mean for you?
0: It means I was thinking about this. It was like I think it's about being respectful of the heritage that you you know that's in your family, but also like not being afraid to like carve out like what that future sort of like looks like, which is stupid because it's in the fucking name, modern minority. But like, I think it's easier said than done. to, I guess like have that balance, I guess where you at once feel confident in who you are and like where your family comes from, but also like not being afraid to like challenge everything that comes with that. Yeah. And because I think it's, Too often, I wonder, like, am I being deferential enough? Am I being, like, respectful enough? Like, Mm -hmm. what is this career choice that I've made? Mm -hmm. Like, this is all, these are all questions that weigh, like, very heavily on me at times. And it's about trying to, like, be a little bit kinder to yourself in this
1: existence. Yeah, that's really thoughtful. This has been such a rad chat. Christina, thank you not just for... I'm, I'm glad Victor introduced us. Thanks for kind of sharing, but also thanks for just doing the work you're doing and you know, putting the unique lens on everything that you're doing because I think it's really important work. Oh,
0: thank you so much.
1: And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Ramin Segel, And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon.